Hello, everybody, and welcome back to your critically acclaimed. This is a podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where our patrons have the power to sponsor an episode about anything they like. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I don't have a cute nickname, but uh, you can call me whatever you like. And uh, today on Your Critically Acclaimed, uh, we are welcoming uh, a patron who writes into us pretty often. You may recall their letters on various episodes of We've Got Mail, and they've got a hell of a topic for us today. Welcome, one and all, the illustrious B. Peterson. Good morning. Woo! Woo! So what have you got for us, Morning, evening, afternoon. Yeah. Um, Well, so today for... Our show, I, it took some took some figuring out what we were going to finally talk about. Once we once I finally decided on it, it was I think it was pretty clear to me that I think that it would be really valuable um, for me and for anyone who's maybe not as familiar with this genre of film as it has kind of become in many categories on streaming services. There's always a certain section dedicated to this to this category of film, but just if we could take take a moment to do an iron list of sorts and to highlight various queer films and filmmakers, queer cinema, that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, and uh, it's going to be kind of an iron list format. Uh, each one of us is going to pick five queer films that we love or that mean a lot to us. Uh, there are different types of queer films. There are films explicitly by queer filmmakers. There are films that are explicitly queer, but... Maybe some are queer coded because they came from a time when it was harder to be confrontational about these kinds of topics in mainstream cinema, which of course stinks, but it's what we had to go with. And there are definitely a large variety of films uh, that we can discuss. And, uh, you know, you may know of them from the celluloid closet, uh, for example. Uh, so I, th- I will probably end up talking about at least one or two of those. Uh, B, is there anything you want to talk about just as a as a preamble uh, beyond why uh, uh, just the decision to do this particular podcast, or do you want to just jump right in? Well, um, I think I'll just before we start with the the list and the recommendations that I just kind of want to get a baseline, and so I'm just wondering about where did our experiences with queer cinema start or and if it's applicable where our experiences with queerness itself started and so Whitney why don't we start with you uh well my mom grew up a dancer so she was uh constantly talking about all of her gay friends and uh you know have several gay relatives so queerness was always kind of a big part of my life personally uh in terms of like queer and and I myself am queer, so you know I started you know coming out as it were a little bit when I was like around seventeen, and it was never much of an issue, luckily for me. Uh, everyone I always talked to just said, "Oh, that's cool, you're bisexual, great." Uh, so it, it it was never like a big source of drama. I don't have a, an expose about my coming out story. I just sort of was kind of out. Um, as for queer cinema, I. I'm trying to think of like what what the first time I saw like an explicitly gay character or gay action on screen and it might have been it's not even a very good movie Blake Edwards Switch uh that's a movie about 
a, a cad, sort of like a Lothario who's sleeping around with a lot of women. Uh, three women decide to sort of lure him to a house one evening and they murder him. And he wakes up in the afterlife and God, who is voiced by both a, a man and a woman, says, you can go back and try to make things right. But this time, and Satan convinces God of this, you have to be a woman. And he comes back in Ellen Barkin's body. Uh, and it's about how this Lothario now has to stand on the brunt end of the misogyny that he was perpetuating before. It's again, it's not a great movie, some interesting ideas. Uh, but in that film, Ellen Barkin grabs another woman by the face and just plants one right on her lips in a really kind of sexual way. And I was like maybe 12 or 13 when that movie came out. And I remember being a little bit taken aback by that moment. It's like, Oh yes, this is something that happens. I just don't think I'd ever seen it close up like that before. So that, that kind of was, I know it's such an inauspicious start, but that was <laughs> sort of my first exposure to queer cinema as it were. All right. William. Uh, well, it's, it's speaking of inauspicious, the earliest I can remember consciously uh, seeing a queer character in cinema was Meshach Taylor in Mannequin. <laughs> and I suspect a lot of people in my generation uh, might have had a similar uh, experience. Uh, if you haven't seen Mannequin, it is a very, very, very silly romantic comedy from the 1980s starring Andrew McCarthy as an artist who likes to work with mannequins and Kim Cattrall as his mannequin. And when no one is around, she comes to life and they are flirty and have fun in department stores. Um, but can the love ever be? And Meshach Taylor plays uh, Andrew McCarthy's boss, and Meshach Taylor is uh, just really colorful and really vibrant and alive, and uh, Meshach Taylor always wore these incredible sunglasses, and I remember thinking to myself, I want all of those sunglasses. <laughs> all of those sunglasses. I actually, like, I was so young when I saw this movie for the very first time that... Although I was obviously aware that Meshach Taylor wasn't straight, I also didn't have the words to codify queerness. Uh, hmm. So all I knew is Meshach Taylor was really cool. And then one day <laughs> I want to be able to wear clothes like Meshach Taylor and just like be awesome. And it, and I realize now that like that love, that kind of has like had an influence on me but i think the first time i saw a film that was explicitly queer and about queer uh uh stories and characters was the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert which came out probably when i was mm. like eight or nine years old and there are issues that i actually now have with the movie um and particularly in terms of how it deals with uh one filipino character which is not cool uh but the sensitivity that it had towards uh, a trans woman played by Terrence Stamp, who, who yes, is cis, um, and also um, Hugo Weaving and Guy Pierce as uh, two gay men who they go on a road trip uh, to put on a big uh, uh, show where they lip sync to ABBA in the most amazing costumes you've ever seen. Won an Academy Award for uh, costume design. Um, that was a, such a... a tender and sensitive film as it related to uh, queerness that 
I know it had a, had a really strong impact on me. So that was probably the first time I consciously saw a queer film, understood what was happening in it, understood the full context of it, and just absolutely had a major impact on me just as a human being. Um, so that's probably it. Yeah. Okay. Um, for me, I, so for context, I'm 19 years old. Um, and I come from what might be considered the Bible belt of Washington state. And so growing up, I wasn't really familiar with the concepts, with the, with the vocabulary, with anything until about maybe halfway through middle school. And, Accompanying my um, my exploration, this new thing that I was exploring called film, called cinema, I found a um, I, I I started realizing that there was these this there was a whole world outside of what I already knew, and that was that was those years. While I would consider meant several of those years to be maybe the worst in my life, just because middle school is is terrible um, <laughs> that, but I found that a couple, a couple films just kind of shook me in a little bit that I would, would eventually lead to me coming out to myself and then by extension, various family and friends. And the first film that I think I, I ever saw that was, that was explicitly queer was, um, and it's not a great movie, but it's the imitation game with Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan hmm. Turing. Um, I remember seeing it. I was, it was in the early January. Um, it was doing his awards run and I was, well, I would have been, I would have been almost 14. And I remember that it was me and six people, maybe in their sixties or seventies in the theater. And it was, and I was just watching this and this image of, he had these, there were these flashbacks of him, um, and this boy named Christopher, Alan Turing and Christopher. And it was just like, and there, the, at the climax of the film, it was revealed that Christopher had died and he had left a note for Alan Turing that said, like, I love you or something. That Alan Turing was going to give Christopher a note that said, I love you. And it was just this, it was just kind of the shift was like, is that a thing? And, and then I would say maybe a couple, a year or so later, um, I was, of all things, Cowboy Bebop, which has now become a kind of a, a one considered one of the great anime series, that there is a two episode a two episode arc with this character who had had an implied relationship with with the antagonist of the show, and as, while they were male presenting, and so it would have been a gay relationship, and then he had. This character, um, I can't remember the name, but this character was had some sort of accident and was stranded, and to survive, they had to go through all these hormone therapies, and it resulted in them having um, breasts as well as male genitalia. And this character was wore dresses and wore suits, and I don't think the portrayal is com- not de- it, it's not devoid of, of problems. It's repeatedly it's referred to as a uh, a dysfunction or a condition. Um, but that idea of just seeing something outside of the gender binary was just really was new to me. And those two things I think led me to realizing who I was and that there was this whole world, this whole world of queer cinema out there. 
It's uh, it's one of the frustrating things about uh, cinema that, you know, as we explore the history of cinema, particularly cinema as it relates to various social issues, uh, that some of the most important films that deal with those issues, some of the most... Uh, uh, some of the films that had a great impact on people that dealt with those issues uh, because they were made at a different time by different people uh, when there were different attitudes and different ideas. Uh, sometimes they're not all positive, but they still can have a positive impact. Uh, we just have to discuss those other elements of them as well. That's mm-hmm. what I take from them anyway. And... Yeah, and like um, you, this this film won't certainly I I highly doubt will be showing up on any of our lists. But the Silence of the Lambs was yes. one of those films that I saw, which is an incredible piece of filmmaking. But if you take out the fact that the movie is explicitly almost demonizing uh, uh, transsexuality or transgenderism as this kind of horrific thing, um, where a where a man is literally building a female skin out of other women and it's just anyway that's it's a problematic element it's a great movie besides but yeah it's like it's trying to be very explicitly feminist and yet its portrayal of all queer issues is at the very best extremely wrong-headed and Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's a it's a it's a damn shame um okay uh why don't we get into the list let's let's do it who do you want to start off so whitney why don't you why don't you start off with with your first pick all right. Um, let's see. What do I want to definitely have on my list here? Why don't we start with Born in Flames? Have you guys seen Born in Flames? I haven't. There yeah. is there. I can guarantee you that I've maybe seen at most one of your films, Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Born in Flames is really uh, it's a, a film directed by Lizzie Borden from uh, 1983. And it's filmed in this really kind of super verite documentary style. And it is about the punk rock lesbian fringe. Uh, It's about two competing pirate radio stations uh, and what uh, all of the people in this community that are sort of surrounding these stations and are just uh, in the local uh, New York scene – uh, how they react to uh, somebody being arrested and dying in police custody. Uh, and it's really, really raw. It's really, really uh, honest. And uh, it's just really, really uh, just full of, of grit and truth. It, it so comes what, from... Uh, what, 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 what time frame did this come out? Uh, this came out in 1983. And it's okay. it's been re-released several times since. So, uh, like I think First Run Features uh, remastered it and re-released it at some point. Uh, but yeah, all all of these characters are all kind of playing uh, versions of themselves in a lot of ways. Uh, the main actor is uh, na- named Honey. She plays a character named Honey, uh, and uh, it's really tackling. And it t- spends a lot of time talking and discussing and showing all of the different perspectives, all the characters, uh, what sexism looks like, uh, how, and how angry that makes people and the extremes they're willing to go to just sort of fight it in a a guerrilla warfare kind of sense. Uh, it's incredibly inspiring. It's incredibly dark. It's incredibly, uh, it's just incredibly wonderful. Uh, 
the way it weaponizes and makes salient and makes important outrage is exhilarating to behold. Uh, there's these people are uh, recognized that they're kind of on the outs of society and how unfairly they are treated is making them really, really angry. And all of their talks about it and the way they respond to it is incredibly true. So the, when you say anger, I'm just curious, like, is it, is it a kind of anger where it's, where it's expelled in the dialogue where it's just people saying explicitly that they're angry or is it a kind of where almost maybe in a sorry to bother you where the filmmaking is just so aggressive that it's just in your face the entire time no no it's it's not at all like something like sorry to bother you which is uh, really highly stylized born in flames is is incredibly down to earth and it really just sort of stalks the streets of 1980s new york and a lot of the scuzzier neighborhoods with uh the director lizzie borden and some uh editors one of whom is played by Catherine bigelow uh oh. sort of uh observing everything it almost has an observational style to the point where you're not sure which parts were staged or not okay that sounds very interesting yeah born in flames is really really terrific all right william okay uh so for my first pick uh i'm already cheating because it's a tie uh all right. <laughs> there are two there are two films by the same filmmaker. They are horror films from the 1970 that are very explicitly queer, but because they're through the context of horror, it feels as though they're allowed to go a lot further than a lot of mainstream films were allowed to. Uh, they're both directed by uh Roy Ward Baker and they are The Vampire Lovers and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Okay. Uh, the Vampire you, Love... Oh, you would. You would go for these, the 70s Grindhouse these, movie. These are not Grindhouse. This is Hammer. Okay. This is Hammer Horror. This is classy, British, cobblestone streets, fancy castles, lots of frocks. You got uh, Peter Cushing in one of these. Like these are These are classy British Hammer productions. However... Classy and Hammer only go together so well because although Hammer Films uh, and Hammer Studios is best known for their many, many horror movies and in uh, the mid-20th century, they started taking a lot of the classic horror movie monsters, vampires, the Frankenstein monster, the mummy, the werewolf, etc. and started explicitly exploring those characters, those creatures, those monsters from more violent and more sensual perspectives. Some of these movies are really great. Some of these movies are really cheesy. Most of them are really fun, at least the ones that I've seen. And there's so many I haven't seen them all. Uh, but with these two films, Roy Ward Baker, I think, uh, used the horror genre not just to discuss... And, and he will... Apparently, like based on interviews I've read, he... If he did this, he did it sort of subconsciously. Somehow he read the story of Carmilla and claims he didn't pick up on any gay subtext. I'm like, that's the text. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he wasn't like explicitly, apparently, trying to make queer cinema. But the stories were queer, and he filmed them in such a way that they explored that. Uh, the first one is The Vampire Lovers. Uh, it is 
the story of Carmilla, a uh, f- uh, female vampire, uh, who gloms on to a young woman who is very sheltered. And because all the men are just sort of distracted by their own nonsense and don't care about women's issue, they don't realize that this young daughter, you know, teenager, uh, and this seemingly teenaged woman who is staying with her as a, as a house guest, and also the young lady's governess, are all forming way more intimate attachments that the men will eventually be comfortable with. And of course, the men being the men, will decide to kill them all. Uh, it's it's very much like this sort of dark inverse of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where like all the <laughs> men show up at the end of the story and are like, well, we can't have any of that, and they decide to... So there's a, there's a very distinct tragedy here, I think, that obviously there is a literal vampire who is killing people, and that is horrifying but this is one of those great vampire movies that uses vampirism as an explicit code for um uh people in society who are outsiders and in this case specifically uh queer cinema Uh, i think the first film that i've ever noticed to explicitly do this with vampires was dracula's daughter uh, which is historically noteworthy but i actually think it's kind of a dry film uh the vampire lovers is really beautifully filmed Pretty well acted overall, colorful, uh, very engaging. I'm a big fan. And then Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde uh, is a story of Dr. Jekyll. And he thinks he has found the key to uh, medical marvels. But in the process, uh, he decided to use only the genetic material uh, from women. So when he creates his formula, he turns into a woman. And this completely changes his view of his own identity and he starts losing his sense of identity and he starts uh realizing that he's increasingly comfortable wearing women's clothes and that he has these feelings for the men in the household and is that really who i am and this sort of uh uh internal struggle with his own identity of course has a very literal sense because it's a horror story about dr jekyll and in this case sister hyde because she pretends to be his sister um when he is transformed um it's obviously you know there's there's definitely coding here for uh trans stories and the trans uh 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 uh, experience, but obviously the movie is very naive about it. Obviously, the movie is using it in a horror context, uh, so it doesn't all track. But when you look at it from the perspective of here's a movie in the 1970s that is directly tackling this and is doing so with wit and thoughts more thoughtfulness than you'd imagine. There's some really classy cinematography in this film, like it's it's a handsome presentation. Um, I think it's a really interesting film and. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other horror movies I could put on my list. I may put one more uh, that deal with queer issues through the lens of the anxieties that people have about their own queerness or the queerness of others and how this is something as a society that we need to sort of exercise. So regarding Carmilla, um, I, I recognize the name because I think that there is a new adaptation of that out this year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I think, I think Alonzo and Dave, or at least at least Dave, reviewed it on Linoleum Knife, um, and so I was. So there's that that 
improve my mind. I have a question, though, about Sister Hyde. Yeah. Because the only adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that I've seen is the, ni- is the pre-code, the 1931 one, the, the most famous one. Mm. And it's rather explicit in that film that Hyde is very much a monstrous figure who is destroying um, Jekyll's life. And so I'm just wondering, does, is there any subversion of that in Sister Hyde, whereas is, is it seen as, I mean, yes, it's, because it's influencing Jekyll's life. Is it a negative thing? Is, it a, is there any sort of monster in that? Well, in that? The, the monster is Jekyll. And in fact, Jekyll, before Jekyll takes the formula, Jekyll is stealing corpses. They actually incorporate the story of Burke and Hare, who uh, rather notoriously uh, were supplying uh, medical researchers with corpses, and the medical researchers weren't really eager to ask questions, so not everyone was dead before Burke and Hare got to them. Um, so actually, Jekyll isn't this like innocent person who takes a potion and becomes evil. Jekyll was actually corrupt to begin with. Okay. So that's a subversion right there. This isn't a story of I take a potion, I become a woman, and now I'm evil. This is a story of I am actually a whatever my motivations. I am a sadistic uh, uh, monster, if not outwardly misogynistic, then certainly incredibly sexist. And when I all of a sudden take this potion and become a woman, it completely changes his experience. Is she still villainous? Yeah. She is okay. trying to perpetuate. A, she's still Doctor Jekyll in a way. She's also trying to perpetuate her own existence, and the only way to do that is through the machinations of the sci-fi plot. Again, a lot of these horror movies—they're not like these perfectly wonderful, empowering allegories, but they are at the very least exploring. Uh, uh, this, these two, I think in particular, are exploring the issue more effectively than most of the other horror films I've seen of that era. Uh, and watching them today is still very entertaining and impressive. I think. All right. So um, when it came to, I I worked hard on this list. I spent some time on this list, and I I realized very early on that I didn't just want to do the the best queer films that I've seen. And because I think that if we did that, we'd just all be talking about Moonlight and Portrait of Lady on Fire. And <laughs> while those films are beautiful and I, it would be, would be, we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention them on this podcast, because in my mind, those are two perfect films exploring, exploring tenderness and, and consent and just beautiful. So I, but I didn't want to just talk about perfect movies. And that being said, my first film is a film that I consider to be perfect. And Hmm. it is, um, it is a film that I like a lot of, like a lot of movies I only caught up with in the last year. And in anticipation of Kelly Reichardt's first cow, I went through and started watching all of her previous films. And so my first pick is a film that, that knocked my socks off and it's Kelly Reichardt's certain women. Oh, now, this is a great movie. It It's one of my new favorites. I love this film. So certain women is the story. It's, it's three it's adapted from three short stories that have nothing to do do for me nothing to do with each other but but they're but they're all placed in in and around Livingston Montana and specifically what and there's there's the first section is about Laura Dern as a lawyer and the second section is about Michelle Williams as a mother and a and a, and a wife and 
but the, the focus that I'm wanting to focus on here is on the third, and I think most people would argue the best of the three. And it's a story that focuses on an unnamed farmer played by Lily Gladstone. And they're, they go to night school. They're, they just, on a, kind of on a whim, they just go to a night school. And Kristen Stewart is there um, teaching a night, a night class about school of law and or something something just completely benign and it matter and and lily gladstone's farmer is just quietly just is reaching out for for a connection for some kind of connection there's almost there's very very little dialogue in this section of just of just quiet chatting with with this teacher and who's drives from four hours away in Livingston to come across a pass and to come teach this class that she doesn't even know how to teach. And it's just, and it's just this incredibly emotional. It's a powerful, 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 subtle, subtle performance from Lily Gladstone. And, and the reason that I think that it affected me so much besides something I'm going to get to in a minute is that it's a story about a, a, a queer person who ultimately doesn't really come out of the closet and doesn't really find any meaningful queer relationship. And that's a story that I, I really haven't seen much before is just about someone who's in the closet and at the end of the story has not had this huge cathartic moment. And in fact, it's really more of an anti-climax. And I think that that was just something that was very refreshing to see in that there's often these these queer films are very melodramatic and there is this big tragedy at the end where one of them dies or or the relationship can't go on they must separate after this paradise time and and this Lily Gladstone just has a moment where where they just go back to their life and nothing has really happened and it's just I just found that to be incredibly touching and, and I'm just, I'm wondering, I'm curious. I'm assuming you've both seen this film. I have. I, I have not. Oh, no, I'm, not, not, I'm actually surprised. No. Okay. Okay. And I think one of the, in- Lily Gladstone is just, she's blow away. They're, they are blow away. Um, Cause this is something that I found out upon my second viewing was I did some research because a lot of people were wondering if this is, um, a, a a lesbian relationship that that Kelly Reichardt is exploring, and it turns out that in Lily Gladstone's eyes, it was more less about um, a, a a gay relationship, and it was more about trans because Lily Gladstone, it turns out, is non-binary, hmm. and um, and they were seeing this film as a as a about a story of of this of this farmer coming to terms with their identity with their gender identity. And I was just, and watching the film a second time through that lens just made me love it even more. Yeah. It's a really beautiful film. And the other two sequences aren't really explicitly queer in the way that this one is, but this one is really powerful. And for me, this is also the one that really stood out. Like the Laura Dern segment has like kind of like a hostage situation even. And it is, it is less dramatic than Lily Gladstone and Kristen Stewart having like a quiet dinner a couple of times like it's so intense and i think you're right it's because it never reaches those crescendos but we know 
that from Gladstone's perspective, this is the kind of relationship, this kind of moment that no matter how brief it is, will impact their entire life. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating because in our reality, we all have moments in our life that we have carried with us that have defined us in some cases that if you told someone the story of what it was, it would sound really kind of banal. But for us, it was this moment where we had uh, a revelation or we realized something about ourselves or the world around us or other people. And I think the beauty of that segment in certain women is that although it seems like if you were only just sort of glancing at it, to be a somewhat uneventful narrative, it is, and all I think thanks to Gladstone's performance. Kristen Stewart is amazing in this, but I don't think she's having the same kind of epiphany Gladstone is. Uh, all because of her performance, and it's still understated. You understand that this experience is everything, and mm-hmm. it is so moving. It's a really incredible film. I love that movie. Yeah, and the the reason I think that this film connected so closely with me is because I recently finished my uh, my first and possibly final year of college, wow. which was out at Montana State University in Bozeman, which is 40 minutes outside of Livingston. And the climax of the third story is Lily Gladstone driving at night to Livingston to just go and seek a connection. And at one of my lowest points, it was a it was a tough year, I have to admit, at Montana State. One of my lowest points, there was a person out in Livingston who I didn't really know. And they just said, hey, do you want to come out to Livingston? And we could just drive out and just, like, take some photographs. And so at night, I just got in my car and I drove out to Livingston and nothing really happened. I took, I took a, one nice photograph and it was... And just watching this play out in certain women was just like, oh, this is exactly what happened to me. And it was just a very, it was just, it was the craziest coincidence. In, in Laura Dern's segment, there's a scene where she goes to a mall. And that is the mall where I would go and see movies. That is the one theater in Bozeman. They shot in Bozeman for, for one day or whatever. And they're just sitting in the same cafeteria that I would sit in. Anyway, and so that film, I just, it's, a, it's a new favorite. It's very personal to me. That's great. Nice. All right, Whitney. <laughs> well, I, I don't have anything quite so personal, I'm afraid, or anything quite so sweet. In fact, um, I have yet another film on my list, uh, which is kind of about uh, the queer underground. Um, John Waters. <laughs> one, well, this is not a John Waters film. Okay. I'm going okay. to pr- prelude this by a, a quoting John Waters. He once uh, kind of lamented the fact that uh, queer people were getting a lot more mainstream of acceptance, like he saw it as a good thing, of course. And, you know, the lack of oppression is, of course, wonderful. But he did say that he missed the time in his life when being gay was punk rock unto itself. That, uh, you know, he he was raised in Baltimore. He really liked hanging out at, with all of the other sort of freaks and weirdos and being queer sort of forced you at the time into uh kind of off to the fringe and it was a fringe that he actually 
took a lot of comfort in and took a lot of enjoyment from and uh, could wield his own queerness as a, a weapon against the squares that he hated. He could just be gay in front of them and that was enough. Uh, you know, it was this sort of s- s- stellar act of rebellion. Uh, so uh, several films on my list, I think, tap into this sort of punk rock queerness, whether or not it's a positive or, or a negative look on that sort of thing. I think uh, Born in Flames does it in a really kind of uh, politi- socio-political way. It's really exploring what the the views of people were on the ground, as it were. Uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder's Fox and His Friends is kind of trying to explode how rough a life it is. Uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, very short-lived but incredibly prolific German filmmaker who made uh, the bulk of his work in the 1970s, uh, made what I think is sort of his thesis film in Fox and His Friends uh, from 1975, where uh, he plays the titular Fox and... Uh, how he is pretty much just destitute and how difficult it is for him to get money together and gather friends around him when almost nobody in society wants anything to do with A, queer people, and B, Fox in particular. Uh, It is a really rough film. It is about extreme poverty. It is about how ordinary venues of just earning a basic living are not available to uh, the queer underground and how there is a lot of comfort to be had in the community, but also how there's a lot that is simply denied these people uh, because of basic indecency that they experience every single day. Uh, It's not a cheery film, Fox and his friends. Uh, There's a lot of suffering in it and it ends very, very badly for uh, the title character, but you can't take your eyes off of it. There's so much uh, truth and texture to what Fox is experiencing. And it really is sort of plunging a lot of audiences who may not have seen uh, queerness on screen before deep into the queer experience of Germany in 1975. Uh, I, I, I'm... I almost feel gauche mentioning it just because it's mentioned so frequently in uh, conversations of queer film. But I think rather than dismiss it as something that is commonly mentioned, go back and experience how raw it is and how much it hurts and how much uh, love in this community has been turned into a, a kind of unfortunate commodity because that's kind of the only way that a lot of society can process it. Um, I, I, I really, really love it, even though it is it is deep and dark and tragic, and it does play into a rather unfortunate cliche of uh, how queer characters end up being depressive or suicidal in some sort of way. That's something that's explored a lot in uh, the documentary film The Silly Lloyd Closet, how for many, many years... Uh, whenever there was an out queer character or even not an out queer character, they would always be depicted as 
sad and dejected and suicidal. And uh, there's this long, long list of films with queer protagonists who commit suicide at the end. Um, Fox and, and his friends. It's not entirely without reason, though, because mm-hmm. I mean, it I, it is it, while it is a cliche. I think it is safe to say that that mental health among the queer community is is something that is it's it's a battle it's a battle because you're fighting against everything and so i don't i don't really think it's uh it's totally totally unnecessary to at least at least explore those in the in the in the big films you say that fox fox and his friends is maybe a uh uh one that everybody knows i've never heard of it i now know to check it out oh okay. <laughs> uh, so so it's i've i've that's why we're doing this and so anyway okay well in that case i highly recommend it yeah this is <laughs> this is one of those classics of world cinema that i i remember hearing mentioned very frequently when i first started to dip into uh international film back in like my late teens and early 20s uh yeah and i, I saw it and i was really moved and depressed by this movie but i kept on coming back to it and and realizing just what fassbender is exploring with it all right whitney or william sorry okay uh so i i when i was coming up with my list i wanted to try to represent a variety of different genres if i could and it occurred to me that there's one genre where we don't have a lot of queer protagonists and that is the action genre the action genre tends to be very macho the action genre tends to be very uh conservative in its view of masculinity because in american cinema in particular the action movie heroes tend mostly to be men and there are definite exceptions to that rule but it's prevalent and Although there are definitely some films like Atomic Blonde that have elements of queerness in them, uh, there's one action movie franchise, or at least there are two entries in it, in which the protagonist was, according to the filmmaker, intended to be gay, but they didn't feel that they were allowed to explicitly say so. And that is the Transporter 1 and 2. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, this is a really, really, really interesting. Three has serious problems, and we'll talk about that in a minute. One and two uh, were directed by Louis Leterrier. Corey Yen is uh, uh, credited as the filmmaker in The Transporter One, but apparently that was largely contractual. And according to Louis Leterrier, who I actually explicitly interviewed about this, uh, according to Louis Leterrier, that was mostly him. Uh, and. The, the story is about a guy who's a getaway driver for hire and he fetishizes his car. He's got all these beautiful car things and he's a brilliant, uh, uh, brilliant driver, brilliant fighter, you know, can kick anyone's butt. And he's played by Jason Statham, who is just a fist of a man. Just a, <laughs> just a, mm, like you just know he could kill you with his with his forehead. I'm going to kill you with my bio fans. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what he got. Like, oh my God. It's, it's like he was in the room with us. That was great. Um, I am in the room, but, uh, but Leterrier said like the, the films were kind of straightforward. And so he was very keen to explore the character through one, something he couldn't really feel like he could express, express very vividly, which is the idea that he is queer 
And he is not really able to talk about it. And this isn't particularly well expressed in the first film. Uh, and some people have tried to shoot holes in this argument by saying that in the first film, Jason Statham's character, who over the course of the film is asked to transport a mysterious package, turns out it's a kidnapped woman, he rescues the woman, and eventually they sleep together. They sleep together because she is extremely aggressive about it. He does not look comfortable. We cut to them the next day. All of a sudden, he is a very changed person, and he's wearing like buttoned-up shirts, and she's complaining that he's barely talked to her since they had sex. And you realize that he's not comfortable with this. Um, and then in the second film, they actually deal with it more directly. Second film, he has become, uh, uh, as a favor, he's become a driver to the son of, I think, a U.S. senator. And he likes the kid a lot. And the kid, of course, gets kidnapped and he has to rescue them. Um, but the mother of the child actually is like, really unhappy with her husband and she like comes on to Jason Statham and he shows no interest whatsoever. And he explicitly said, it's because of who I am. And you know that like there's that plausible deniability in the screenplay. It's because he's a killer, but in actuality, the idea is no, it's because he's quite gay. And indeed there's this French detective who's a supporting character in both films. And in the first one, you think they just have this sort of, funny rapport but in the second one you realize that that rapport is actually kind of flirtatious and he has like come to america to cook for him and you realize this is all actually kind of amorous and there is a villain in transporter 2 who represents like raw cinematic female sexuality like whenever possible she like fights and kills people wearing her underwear and you can just see that jason statham had wants nothing to do with it like there's a scene where she like licks his face and he's like Egh! but on top of all of that he is an action superstar and the actual action sequences in the transporter movies the first two are absolutely superb they're incredibly choreographed they're wonderfully filmed Two gets especially ludicrous, but in this absolutely delightful Fast and Furious kind of way. Like, there's a jet ski chase on land. Like, it's so weird. You just kind of <laughs> have to cheer. The first film has this incredibly, like, this incredibly sexy uh, grease fight where Jason Statham's fighting a bunch of guys in like uh, uh, a room with like a whole bunch of like buses and there's a big tub of grease and he pours the grease on himself on purpose so that they can't like grab a hold of him and he's like sliding on the ground and like the grease is rubbing all over his chest it's very very sensual um, very subtle very subtle uh but it's thrilling it's exciting he is a great coded gay action hero and unfortunately, uh, Louis Leterrier apparently let this slip initially in uh, uh, an interview rather unexpectedly. And it's my theory, anyway, I don't have to talk to anyone about this part, but it's my theory that when they made the Transporter 3, they decided to lean as far away from that as possible to the extent, and this is repulsive, uh, that the character, the, the once again, there's a woman that he's, uh, uh, spends most of the film with here. If they like move more than twenty feet away from the car, the, they'll blow up. It's a stupid plot. Um, but uh, he's he's with this young woman, and at one point in the film, 
She forces him at gunpoint to have sex with her to prove his masculinity. And it's so gross and so wrong. And it's not, there's a new filmmaker, it's a totally different vibe, and it just feels like a complete betrayal of the character. Now, there was a live-action television series of The Transporter, which is actually quite good, that doesn't have the gay subtext. But the first two movies do. And once you see it, I don't think you can unsee it. And I think you see these are actually really cool gay action movies. And I think they're really, I think they're awesome. And I hope more people mm. see them and hope more people appreciate that there's a little more going on to them than might, at a mm. glance, meet the eye. All right. So, all right, for this next one, I'm just going to make this next one quick um, because I know that neither of you have seen it, but I, I, would, I could not go throughout this, with, throughout this podcast without mentioning what is easily my favorite television show, and it's a Netflix original, and it's called Dear White People. And Dear White People, there's three seasons of it, on, and the fourth season is coming whenever productions start up again after COVID. Um, the fourth and final season, and it's from creator Justin Simeon, who is a, a gay man, as far as I understand. And it's an adaptation of his 2014 film, also called Dear White People. And it's about a group of black students at a predominantly white university and dealing with racial tension on campus. That's, that's the log line. But what it reveals itself to be is it's not just about race, but it's also about sexuality and it's also about gender. And it's about all these power dynamics that are, and are put in this microcosm of this university and then ex explicitly discussed in every single way by almost all perspectives that you could imagine. And it's, and it's, um, I have to shout out Logan Browning, as Sam White, the protagonist, who in the film was played by Tessa Thompson in one of her first large roles. Um, D. Ron Horton as Lionel Higgins and Brandon P. Bell as Troy Fairbanks. There's a huge cast um, featuring uh, lots of guest stars, but that's that that's the those are the I would say that the three core, core characters. And yeah, they just go through you name it: race, gender, sexuality, activism, reliance on media, police brutality, sexual harassment, and it's all. It's the whole thing is ferocious. The whole thing is hilarious and it's all nuanced. And, and I think the most interesting thing about watching it today is that the film and the first season of the show were created during the Obama presidency. And it was as predominantly as a response to the idea that we were living in a post-racial society where we didn't really, that racism was over. Right. And, and as it turns out, no, and the the way that the show reacted to the to to forty five coming in coming into into view and then taking over everything, and it just it you'd think that maybe it would lose some of its power because it's it's because all the issues are out in the open now and it's not as as maybe revolutionary to discuss these topics, but it turns out that now they can just go they can go harder and they can talk about the me too movement, which is a large, uh, large part of season volume three and it goes into conspiracy theories. And, and it's just, I love the show. Um, I highly recommend if I, I love the tagline for the show or dear white people, I bet you think the show is about you. And, and it's just, it's a, it's just exploring 
what the nature of power and prejudice is in all its forms and how to confront it and dismantle it no matter who you are and no matter no matter what you're dealing with that there is always something to be to be wary of when it comes to power dynamics and i just thought that that was i i love the show and i just have to shout it out all right well i actually haven't seen that and uh, i am remiss i am remiss it's one I've been meaning to catch up on as well, but you know, there's just so many hours in the day, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're able to shout it out. Thank you for that. All right, moving on. All right. Well, uh, what what queer film list uh, would be complete without a film by Pedro Almodovar? Uh, yes. Yeah. I'm going to pick uh, what I consider his best film, All About My Mother, from 1999. Uh, I'm scratching that off of my list and replacing it with something else. (laughs) I I knew this was going to come up. (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, surely all of us have a a Pedro Almodovar film on our our lists. Um, Yeah, Pedro Almodovar, queer filmmaker, makes uh, films about queer people. He makes these very broad soap opera stories in a way, but they don't play out the way soap operas do where people end up getting into big fights and having these big confrontations in, in all about my mother in particular, but in most Almodovar films, uh, at least of the ones I've seen when there is a big confrontation, it's usually a, an unexpected outpouring of warmth and understanding. Even if characters should perhaps be at odds they tend to be stories about uh, reconciliation. Uh, All About My Mother's plot is is a little bit complicated. It's about a single mom. She has a, a son who's a big uh, fan of a certain actress. While he's uh, waiting outside a theater to get that actress's autograph, he's killed. And it's about how she must now track down the boy's father, who is a trans woman, uh, and who doesn't know about the various children that she's had. And in fact, uh, she's about to father another child. Uh, And it's about how the mother and the actress that her son loved start developing this very warm relationship. And eventually the movie ends with uh, kind of this congealing of goodwill, warmth, and uh, feminine affection that all of these characters realize that they already have and need to foster to survive. Uh, And of course, there's a lot more going on in this movie. Uh, I just really, really, really want everybody to see this movie. I want everybody to become really, really familiar with Almodovar because he makes films that are so full of life and compassion and yet is still very frank about cynicism and failure uh, in a way that I don't think other filmmakers have really been able to grab. Uh, I've not seen all of Almodovar's films. Uh, there's a lot of his earlier films that I still need to catch up on, but I've, I've loved almost every single one of his movies. I'm so excited. Isn't great, but <laughs> all about, all about my mother is, uh, so please, please, please see this film that is constructed around, uh, camaraderie between women trans characters, queer characters, and a lot of, uh, and banks very heavily on a lot of queer iconography. Yeah, no, I just saw this film for the first time uh, a couple weeks ago. I saw it 
um, and as a double feature with All About Eve, for, which I was also seeing for the first time. Oh, that may very well have been the best double feature that I will ever get. Wow. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and All About My Mother, um, it was my second Omodovar film. Um, my first was Pain and Glory, which I just rewatched before recording this. I showed it to my dad and I Still love Pain and Glory. Antonio Bandera should have won the Oscar over Joaquin Phoenix, no question. I agree. Um, that film should have won Best Production Design and Best Costume Design. Um, anyway, Almodovar, I can't wait to get into his stuff because his both of the films that I've seen from him are just these explosions of color and warmth and just pure pure cinema in the in the most cinematic sense, and it's just it's it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, Pain and Glory is was really really great. It, it was one of last year was a pretty terrific year for film, and uh, to the point where there were a lot of great films that a lot of people just didn't talk about. And I feel like Pain and Glory was part of the conversation, but it ended up getting pushed aside in favor of other things. Too many people were talking about Joker for God's sake. Uh-huh. Not enough. Not enough people were talking about Pain and Glory. Uh, yeah, that that movie is so good. It's so good. It's I, I, I maintain, I don't know. I have, obviously I'm still very young in my education, but after last year, I kind of feel that 2019 might very well go down as one of the better years in cinema, just between, I mean, just, I can rattle off a hidden life and portrait of a lady on fire and pain and glory and little women and, um, the farewell and book smart and parasite and Jojo rat, all these films completely different. And those are just the more Oscar-y films. Yeah. Don't forget cats. Oh yes. No one will ever forget cats. If they've seen it, no one <laughs> no, can ever forget cats. No, but there are actually well, a lot of, a lot of under the radar. Fil- I, I was joking about cats. I think cats will one day go down as like a midnight masterpiece, but like, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, you're right. Like even things like, um, I don't know, Dora and the lost city of gold, I think is actually like this really wonderful family film that I think will grow in appreciation over time. It was a really, really good year. It was a really good year. Yeah. yeah I, and uh, the, I, I love the lighthouse. I, I, might oh, be... I totally forgot. Yeah, that that film. Um, <laughs> it's it's a great feature with Portrait Lady on Fire. Yeah. 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 All right, William. Okay. Uh, well, uh, a lot of films to choose from here, and I'm having trouble. Like, I'm I'm looking like at my list, and I'm like, oh no, I only have room for th- for three more things. What do I do? Uh, but I'm gonna go. Uh, I've done a lot of genre films. I think I'm gonna go uh, a little bit more just indie uh, with a film that I actually missed in its original run and only discovered relatively recently. But I absolutely fell in love with it. It is Jamie Babbitt's "But I'm a Cheerleader." Oh, oh. good choice. This is, okay. This is Tell a, me about this. One. Okay. Oh, you haven't seen this one. Okay. So uh, Jamie Babbitt's "But I'm a Cheerleader." Uh, it stars uh, the absolutely wonderful Natasha Leone. Uh, as a high school girl whose parents and teachers begin to suspect that she is gay. She has absolutely no idea whether or not she's gay. But her parents are convinced, and her parents become convinced, to send her to a, quote, homosexual rehabilitation program. Uh, it's one of these. Yeah, but... but- this it's a really is, cartoony version of yeah, it, though. This is actually like a John Waters version of it. This is actually an extremely funny, subversive 
film about how okay we they they wanted to keep their daughter from becoming queer as they would think it uh so the film posits this gay rehabilitation center as run by Kathy Moriarty um as some kind of bizarre cartoon supervillain uh as okay so we just took all of these like queer adolescents and we just shoved them in a room together and we just sort of dared them not to. And as a result, it becomes this extremely odd coming of age story about someone who is being told not to be a thing while every single thing around her is reaffirming that this is in fact her actual identity. And she falls in love for the first time uh, with the wonderful Clea Duvall. Um, and... She learns through, you know, their excursions in the middle of the night to what few queer spaces they can find, uh, that her worldview was very limited, and in fact, everything that she is being taught by her conservative values is wrong, and in a way, it's basically just turning the the sort of conservative mindset that being gay is, is, is some sort of choice, that being queer is some sort of choice and we just have to convince people to choose something else and basically just making them the cartoonish supervillains that they have no idea that they currently are and they just heighten it up and the film is full of colors like the 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 whole uh in order to re uh reaffirm like gender norms like the building is entirely either pink or blue and the characters are all very heightened. Some fall into stereotype territory. That's a, I think that's a side effect of how broad the the, the farce is. Um, but I can always I can also see that turning some people off. I know some people don't care for the film for that reason. But amidst all of this heightened silliness, there is I think genuine anger uh, and also genuine coming of age storytelling about. Uh, a, a young woman finding herself and finding her identity in the midst of an environment that tells her to do anything but that. Uh, this film is also uh, noteworthy in that it's one of the films that was pointed to for the incredible hypocrisy about the Motion Picture Association of America. It was originally rated NC-17 for material that was significantly less salacious than American Pie, which was released with an R rating. Um, Jamie Babbitt had to cut it down in order to be not not too sexy. And uh, that was, of course, just another thing that I think the movie ended up highlighting was this incredible double standard of how a queer teen comedy would be treated very, very differently by the Motion Picture Association of America than a quote-unquote straight teen comedy. Yeah. All right. It's one I've been meaning to get around to, and I just haven't yet. Um, mainly because whenever I hear the word rom-com, I just kind of go, oh, I'll maybe watch another art house film before I get around to it. <laughs> well, this is an uh, art house, farcical, rom-com, coming-of-age social allegory. All right. All right. I'll, I'll put it on my watch list. Awesome. Um, all right. So for my... For my next two picks, I have um, cheated, if you will, in that I chose filmmakers instead of films, and um, and I think I'm justified in both cases. And the one I'm going to talk about—you're a patron; is, you can do whatever you want. 
I, <laughs> I, I, it's your podcast. No, I wouldn't dare do, do what I'm thinking of doing now. Anyway, um, but I think I'm. I, I'd I'd like to. I just. So, and this is someone another uh, filmmaker that I've only discovered this year, and mm. I can't imagine going going further in my film education without knowing about her. And it's the works right. of Cheryl Dunier. And uh, Cheryl Dunier is most well known, I I think, for uh, her 1996 feature, The Watermelon Woman, which um, is largely credited as being the first film directed by a black lesbian. Um, and that film is in it's incredible it's it's so smart and mm. funny and sexy and subversive and and i it's and everything that could be said about it i think has been or at least everything that i would say about it has been better said by uh kyle calgren in his video essay on the watermelon woman which is also featuring and i um jordan searles who is one of the smarter people that I've ever come across in film. They're so brilliant. They're like, like, like Jordan Searles and Cal Calgren. Like, I just want to give a moment. If you aren't following them, if you aren't like looking at their videos or, or their writing respectively, please do. They're so intelligent and so insightful. They're so great. I'm so glad you're giving them a shout out. Yeah, no. And, and their, their video and how it starts out with Kyle Calgren as, you know, your, your your average looking film critic guy this this white guy with facial hair sitting in front of a row uh, a, a wall of, of of dvds and just talking about how this film he found was so cool and making genuine insights about it and then in comes jordan and just like hey um let's there's there's more that we can say about this, and I think that's a wonderful video essay. The, what I wanted to focus on is everything that she did before that, which was her short films, and which I found which I found through the Criterion uh, Criterion Channel, which is I love that I now have the Criterion Channel, <laughs> um, and it's and it's these watching these I just realized um, the only thing that I think is truly valuable. Uh, that a, a valuable observation that Pablo Picasso ever made was when he went to Lascaux and looked at the cave paintings, these 17,000 year old cave paintings. And he said, we have invented nothing. And just about how art is, there is always, there's, you can always find a progenitor to art, no matter what, what piece of art it is. And her Cheryl Dunier's short films from the early nineties are, I was watching them as like, these are vlogs. These are experimental vlogs. This is what she would call, um, I, what did she call them? She called them like Dunier mentories or something. Like she had her own <laughs> genre of documentaries that were, had her own flair. And it's just like, this is, this is, uh, this is the origin. This is the, this is the origin of vlogs about just talking about, about sex and race. And just in these short, short sweet smart little observational things and then there's and then there's a couple longer ones um which play out just are funny um meat cutes or just interactions at parties and anyway and i'm just going to list off the the names of the shorts they're called janine she don't fade vanilla sex an untitled portrait the potluck and the passion and greetings from africa and all of them 
are some degree of incredibly insightful and incredibly funny. And I think that, 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 that watching that was like realizing that it's just, it's one of those moments where I'm, where I'm watching a film and I'm like, ah, yes, this is what influenced all of these other things. And, and it, those are those moments of seeing something and realizing that what you know has an origin and has a predecessor is just, it's one of my favorite things about watching cinema. Well, I actually have not seen uh, uh, any of her work, so I am remiss, and uh, I'm sorry I failed you. And I no, will de- no, 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 I'm, 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 I, I, that sounded like a joke. <laughs> I, 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 I mean it, though. That actually sounds incredibly exciting, and I'm going to head right on over to the Criterion channel this week and check all of that out. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, like I think you can watch the, the all of them together is like 80, 80 minutes or something. Like the shortest one's like three minutes. They're just they're they're short, they're sweet, they and and they're smart. Mm-hmm. All right, so Whitney, uh, I also haven't seen Watermelon Woman. I'm a bad man. Mm-hmm. I'm a bad bad man. Well, you've got a treat. That really is the best part of it. Like you, you admit that you haven't seen something that sounds amazing, that sounds important, mm. and there's that moment of embarrassment. But then you realize the really cool thing is you get to experience it for the first time now. Yeah. yeah. So like it's not it's it's a little embarrassing. Like oh, I, I, you've seen something cool I haven't seen, but now we get to see it, and it's yeah. wonderful. So thank you so much. That is me listening to anything Whitney ever recommends. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, yeah. You're Speaking in for a treat because nobody's ever seen the ones I want to want to recommend. Uh, here's something that's on the Criterion channel that is a very important film in the history of queer cinema uh, that um, often left off of the conversation except by critics. It's Basil Dearden's 1961 film, Victim. Uh, starring Ber- Dirk Bogard, uh, victim points out that uh, the crime of blackmail was once called the gay crime or the queer crime because it was often used against gay people and uh, it was used as a cudgel to keep them in the closet. Uh, this is a movie all about that. Uh, Basil Dearden plays a successful lawyer in England uh, he is approached by a friend slash kind of lover of his uh, who has been uh, stealing a lot of money to pay off a blackmailer and how uh, through a series of events, he is eventually targeted by a blackmailer and what he's going to do about hiding the fact that he is he himself is queer uh, and or if he's going to pay off the blackmailer and just sort of keep this cycle of abuse going. Uh, this film was made in England in 1961, and it explicitly uh, is about queer characters. They're not coded gay. They are gay characters. And I think this is one of the earliest films that I can think of to so explicitly deal with gay characters openly. Uh, It was incredibly controversial at the time, of course, uh, just because it so frankly depicted queer characters, but it never backs off. And something I really admire about Victim is it never treats queerness like a novelty. 
This is something I ran into a lot when I was consuming a lot of queer cinema in the 1990s. There were a lot, uh, but I'm a cheerleader is an exception, but there were a lot of kind of mediocre gay films coming out of the indie scene that assumed you would find the characters interesting merely because they were gay. The queerness was the kind of the only selling point and the characters beyond that maybe weren't that interesting or the script wasn't that good or the story kind of sucked. Uh, and it was easy to become kind of cynical about a certain wave or a certain type of queer film. Uh, Victim doesn't do that. Victim isn't trying to shock you or grab you with salacious queer content. It's actually very frank about its queer characters and the gay characters are very, um, like they're not open about it because they're all still closeted, but uh, it's very, uh, the filmmakers are very open about it and they're very eager to use uh, words like queer very openly and to show that the characters are indeed gay rather than kind of hiding or, or being a little bit squirrely about it. Um, yeah, 1961. This was a year after Psycho. It was a year after Peeping Tom. Uh, it, it was a time to really kind of explore, and now we finally have a character and a film that is uh, going to be daring and frank about its gayness. I, I really like it. It's a decent thriller, and yeah, it's very, very forward-thinking. All right. Uh, have, have you guys seen Victim? Actually, I haven't. I have uh, when you first said it, I assumed it was this Sammo Hung film that I really like, but no, it's not. It's no, film. no, uh, the Sammo Hung film, as far as I know, is is not. Que- I've seen it. Uh, yeah, I don't remember not. any. I don't think there are any queer characters. It's in not. It. It's just. It's just the film I know that's called Victim. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. Hmm. Well, I guess I've got the Criterion Channel. I'll Yay. check it out. All right, William. All right, I'm, I've number got, two. I've got so many films on my list. I only got two spots left, mm. and I oh, oh, it's so hard to narrow this down and like pick a film. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It, I'm really like having like this major crisis right now yeah. over, it's okay. well, especially like considering I realized I put I put together like my top five, and with the exception of switching out all about my mother. I just realized that my top two films are from the same filmmakers, and that feels like such a cheat. So I'm gonna. I'm <laughs> gonna that good. They are. They are. But it feels so lazy. Is it the Wachowskis? It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wachowski Starship. Um, okay, fine. I'll just. I'll just go with my original list. Um, Bound is amazing. Bound is amazing. Bound is one of the best damn movies just what a great thriller what a great romance what a great work of erotica what a great crime story like everything about this movie is incredible and when you realize that the wachowskis were screenwriters before this they like were responsible for uh the movie assassins starring sylvester stallone and antonio banderas which is okay their first film as filmmakers is arguably their best. And then they went on to make The Matrix, which is considered this sort of, you know, this lodestone of contemporary cinema. So I, th- I think Bound is better. I mean it. Like, this movie is fantastic. It stars uh, Gina Gershon uh, as a woman who has just been let out of prison. 
and she gets a job working as a super in, a, in an apartment complex. You know, going from apartment to apartment, tightening nozzles and installing toilet mains and fixing windows. Mm. And um, there's a there's a cliche uh, in film noir, uh, in films like The Postman Always Rings Twice of the uh, sort of uh, repressed housewife. And then the man comes in, and with his raw sexuality and her bridled sexuality that is then unbridled, as it were, uh, and their, the sheer force of their sexiness will lead to crime. Uh, but Bound is between two women, and uh, in that apartment complex, Jennifer Tilly, at the height of her powers, uh, really underrated actor, I think, Jennifer Tilly. It doesn't get enough credit. Um, she's married to Joe Pantoliano. Joe Pantoliano is uh, a mafioso. And uh, Jennifer Tilly uh, really wants to have sex with Gina Gershon. <laughs> so they end up having this illicit affair, and it is incredibly erotically charged. But what happens is Jennifer Tilly is trapped in this really awful marriage with a really awful man. And an opportunity comes along when uh, Joe Pantoliano is responsible for laundering money after a crime gone wrong. And I don't mean laundering it like putting it in a casino and then taking it back out again. I mean the the money is covered in blood. And he has to actually clean the money. And like he put there's this wonderful shot of Jennifer Tilly in her apartment with like tons of hundred dollar bills hanging on clotheslines. Just as they're waiting for it. And they come up with a scheme to convince Joe Pantoliano that there is absolutely no way he can get out of a uh, really horrible situation. He's going to get killed by his own boss. And then while he is fleeing, Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon can steal all the money and run. That's a great setup for any thriller. And the way that the Wachowskis construct it is like a piece of million dollar clockwork where all of the pieces fit together um it's got that wonderful scene in the in the crime movies where they like they talk about how all the plan is going to come together before the plan actually comes together and then this one you realize that we're actually skipping that middle bit and the plan is coming together right now and it's just so breathlessly paced but then things go so spectacularly wrong in this kind of amazing coen brothers blood simple kind of way it is incredibly intense. It is incredibly... Uh, uh, at first, it just seems like it's going to be kind of salacious, and then you realize over time that Gershon and Tilly are actually in love with each other, and it becomes a great love story as well. Um, it's exciting. It's fresh. It feels just as cool today as it did at the time, and it was directed by two trans women, uh, and they knew how to make that material work. Uh, I love Bound. It's one of my favorite movies of the 1990s. It's one of my favorite film noirs. It was on a previous Iron List in which we talked about the best film noirs ever. Uh, it is awesome. Yeah, this is a film that I just discovered this year because um, I decided I would go and just finish out the Wachowskis filmography and see everything that they had made. And, oh my word, I had never heard of this movie. Wow. When my generation knows the Wachowskis, Wachowski Starship for, for The Matrix and the sequels that spawned for maybe Speed Racer, maybe Cloud Atlas, 
and maybe Jupiter ascending. I, there is no talk about bound. Everything is from the matrix on and watching this movie. It's just this low budget thriller where all of the money is on screen and it's the tightest script you'll ever read and the editing and the score and the performances and it just, everything just, it's you, like you said, it's clockwork. It's just, I, I was blown away by this film and it's just, I, I don't know why I hadn't heard of it before. And anyway, it's just one of those generational things where I think that we have to keep bringing some of these films up. They're yeah. not given. This is, this is literally one of the most important jobs of a film critic. And I know a lot of people think film critics are responsible for talking about whatever's popular right now. That's part of it. A lot of, a lot of it is just reviewing new movies. But if film critics can't keep bringing up older movies, and also since we're all too young to have been around since the start of cinema, searching through older movies to find the things that deserve to be rediscovered and deserve to linger on, and deserve to find a new audience that are holding up really, really well. Like that's the that's the gig, and I am actually disappointed that we ha- the Whitney and I haven't done a good enough job preaching the gospel of Bound. Uh, so <laughs> so that's 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 a reminder right there that you know people are like, oh, why are you recommending these movies that people haven't heard of? Some people sometimes we don't have access to them. It's because if we don't talk about them, people won't know about them, and they won't know to look for them. Mm-hmm. So. Bound is awesome, and if you're if you if Bound passed you by, if anyone listening to this, please see Bound. It's so good. It was it was strange watching it because I because it's such a it's so different from all of their other films in that it is this very small intimate story, and everything that they've done since then has been some degree of the biggest thing you've ever seen. And I just wonder, like. Um, what would happen if the Wachowskis went back to that micro budget focus entirely on the script type of thing? And I, I, I kind of have to imagine that, that it would be that cool again. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly could be. All right. So we've come to the number one, Whitney, what film? Wait, 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 wait. Didn't, didn't we do did we hear your number uh, oh no we forgot is, we skipped over my number two yeah it's your number That's two right. don't forget i don't want to i don't want to shortchange right. you here you deserve yeah, your yeah. number two okay the reason it messed up is because this was originally my number one pick and then i decided that there was a film that deserved it a bit more mm. and so this this is these are four films um this is this is peak art house for me these are four films by a pitchet pong vera Sethakul. <laughs> or as he is known um, in the Western world, Joe. Um, a Pichapong Virasethakun is, I've spent a lot of time figuring out how to say that name, and I'm still not getting it right. Um, uh, Abhi, it's Abhichapong Virasethakun. Sure. Yep. <laughs> um, anyway, so Joe is this filmmaker from Thailand, and his films are slow. His films are beautiful his 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 all of his films are focused on people dancing in public squares and lotions and all of these very tiny little details that appear across all of his films and while they don't all explicitly feature queerness in them um uh, joe himself is gay i believe um 
he's I, that's how he's identified in the past and he this is something neat is that he defines queer as anything as possible which i think is just cool <laughs> um that in fact out of the four films that i've chosen only half of one explicitly focuses on a queer relationship and the four films are tropical malady from 2004 Yay. syndromes in a century from 2006 uncle boon me who can recall his past lives from 2010 and Cemetery of Splendor from 2015. And each of these films, what Joe does is he weaves this gigantic, epic, quiet narrative of interconnectivity. And you know, I watched all, almost all of these films back to back to back to back. I just went on, I just spent, I took a couple days and I just watched all of them. This is what I've been doing throughout quarantine is just going through filmographies and going through stuff and what i noticed is that in tropical malady um one of of the men in this relationship mentions that um he has an uncle named boon me who can recall his past lives <laughs> six years later we get uncle boon me who can recall his past lives and in syndromes in a century there is a character who is searching for um his brother the reincarnation of his brother who died as a kid falling out of a tree. And in Cemetery of Splendor, we meet a woman who talks about her past life as a boy who fell from a tree and died. And there's just these threads through all of his films connecting them. And the way that the way that the films explore so explicitly the idea of reincarnation and former and these Buddhist East, East, Buddhist philosophies um, or I believe it's Buddhist and it's just the, and, and how, and karma and how your gender or your sexuality is almost incidental as to what you are experiencing right now and how, what you are living right now is, is you just, you just live in that experience and then things will move on and you will move on. And it's, and and he does it in as in his films as slowly paced as possible and as methodically and as peaceful and in the case of Cemetery of Splendor, which is my favorite, um, as somnambulant as possible. Cemetery of Splendor is literally about a bunch of soldiers who are sleeping, um, and a woman who's caring for him, played by Jinjita Pongpas, who is in most of his films and she gives an incredible performance in Cemetery of Splendor. And, and if these films are not going to be for everyone, these films are slow and quiet and you, it's sometimes it's hard not to fall asleep while watching them. But, but I think specifically if you want to be introduced to his films, I think a good place to be start with would be syndromes in a century which is about a magic trick. The whole film is a magic trick. I don't really want to say about what happens. It's just that we're presented with some characters in a, in a rural hospital and they talk about their lives and something happens halfway through and, and you, and you're blown away. The music in his films is gorgeous. Um, he has a short film from 2014 called Mekong hotel 
which almost the entirety of it is underlaid with this beautiful guitar that uses the same songs that he's used in other films. And it's just, there are four, all of his films are gorgeous that I've seen so far. There's just four peaceful films from a queer filmmaker who, who shows that gender and sexuality and your identity is something that is ultimately fluid and ultimately just something to be experienced and enjoyed before moving on. I, I've seen Tropical Malady. I've seen Uncle Boon Me, and uh, and and I have not seen Syndromes in a Century, nor have I seen Cemetery of Splendor. So I'm I'm behind on my Api Chat Pong where it's cool. But the word somnambulist is just perfect. He loves to walk and contemplate as he walks through his stories, and he allows the extraordinary to. Uh, simply be in those stories. Uh, if something really magical or strange happens, it is simply another part of an ordinary life, and I love that. Uh, and and yes, uh, he does uh, draw very heavily on uh, uh, Thai culture and uh, Buddha, Buddhist symbol symbology. And uh, I feel like Api Chapangurasethakul is a little bit of a hard sell to mm -hmm. a lot of audiences, uh, A, because his films are so deliberately slow, and because I think you have to know a lot about Thai culture and a lot about uh, Buddhism in order to understand some of the symbols that he's putting out. I, I actually agree with that. I've actually only seen Cemetery of Splendor. Um, and which is, it just happened. It was, I was at Sundance and it screened at Sundance and I was like, Ooh, so I went and it, it, it is, it is a, a somnambulant is a great way to talk about it. It is about people who are asleep and, hmm. uh, that sort of state. And yeah, as a narrative, like I think in, in Western cinema, we are used to treating narrative as the driving force in our cinema plot, incident, action. And that was oh, not what Cemetery Splendor is about. And <laughs> and it's not even in that sort of, like, we will throttle you until you calm down. Just calm down. Calm down. Okay, now watch our movie. Like, it doesn't, like, it just sort of ex expects you to get swept along in it. And you might not be willing or able or ready to make that uh, uh, shift in perspective as you sit down to watch that movie. I know I wasn't, and it was kind of jarring, actually. And it, and it is indeed full of uh, of Thai cultural references that I didn't get most of. And as a result, I could appreciate the obvious craft that went into this, the beautiful performances that went into this. But I also got this impression that there is definitely a layer to this movie that is like it's like covered in like a slightly translucent sheet and if i knew enough about the filmmaker's work or if i knew enough about the culture from which it sprang i could lift that sheet and i could see what's actually beautiful about this movie and that's there's something really melancholy about that about seeing a film that you just know that 
you 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 don't have the key code you know you don't have the the decryption device to appreciate all of its wonders so all you can do is say it's clearly very good but i have trouble telling you why mm-hmm. yeah and i i definitely felt that the first i the first film i watched was uncle boon me and that just kind of came out of left field and i was just like this is a I haven't seen anything like this. And then I watched another one and I was like, I haven't, well, I guess I've seen one thing like this. And then by the time I had finished his filmography is just like, I don't know the cultural context, but I feel so fully immersed in this filmmaker's world that it just, I was just, I just felt completely at rest. And now whenever I watch any of his films, I know I don't get all the cultural symbolism and no, I don't get all the political context, but I just am enjoying watching time pass beautifully. Long pause. We, <laughs> we like the films that we just discussed want to lull you into a peaceful state. Just sort of mm-hmm. let you drift through our podcast. Whitney, tell us what your number one film is. Oh, well, yes. it could be. Now, incident. It, it couldn't <laughs> be more different than Api Chatpong, where Seth Kohler tells these slow, very contemplative, very dreamy stories. Because mine is a, a subversive, underground, pop culture fist to the face called Scorpio Rising. Uh, yeah! Scorpio Rising, uh, directed by Kenneth Anger back in 1963, is a short film, it's 28 minutes long. It has no dialogue, but the story is told mostly through pop songs. Uh, yeah, like Ricky Nelson and uh, Ray Charles and uh, You're the Devil in Disguise. It was difficult to find for the longest time, in fact, because uh, it incorporated a lot of pop songs that Kenneth Anger didn't pay for. Uh, but eventually it was let out. Uh, it played the underground circuit in New York City for the longest time. Uh, it pissed off everybody. Oh, golly, it was so great. Uh, it it broke so much ground in terms of depicting a lot of queerness on camera by tapping into a lot of uh, fetish images uh, from uh, queer culture, the way uh, popular culture and... Uh, movies and music helped form a lot of American underground queer culture in the 1960s. Uh, it, the film was protested, weirdly enough, not by like uh, conservative groups. It was protested by the American Nazi Party, strangely enough, uh, because Kenneth Ang, one of the things uh, underground queer culture in New York at the time did was repurpose a lot of fascistic imagery and dress and iconography to serve their own needs. And uh, as such, there was uh, you know, some swastikas on display in, in, uh, in Scorpio Rising, and the American Nazi Party was incensed that this filmmaker would disrespect the flag so. I say, keep it up, Kenneth, keep it up at Kenneth Anger. You're pissing off Nazis. That's wonderful. Uh, we can't get enough of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it it's 
John Waters wouldn't exist without Scorpio Rising. Uh, Jamie Babbitt wouldn't exist without Scorpio Rising. A lot of queer cinema wouldn't exist without Scorpio Rising. It's kind William, we were talking about how you needed a skeleton key into understanding these uh, pieces of Thai cinema. This, I think, is a good skeleton key into getting into queer cinema and finding where a lot of uh, these types and these images and the tone and the culture came from. I mean, I I would even argue, because Blue Velvet, uh, the song Blue Velvet, is used in Scorpio Rising. You know David Lynch you know, was was a young man, and he probably saw this film. Anybody interested in film eventually stumbled upon uh, Scorpio Rising. It played in like an underground cinemas. It it played at midnight shows, uh, and it became really, really iconic uh, in terms of what it was introducing into the pop culture vernacular more so than like the characters or the story. It's also a really significant film in that its use of music was very highly unusual at the time. And I went to, I discovered this movie at, when I was at film school at UCLA and there was a retrospective of the films of Martin Scorsese. And it, a lot of them featured like they were like preceded by films or short films that directly inspired Scorsese that he would freely admit to. And uh, one of those films was Scorpio Rising. And what they talked about was how Kenneth Anger's use of pre-existing pop songs and his attempt to recontextualize them through the use of a narrative if, uh, that the songs were never originally intended to convey was really transformative in terms of how the language of cinema could... Uh, be adapted to pre-existing popular culture. And you'll notice that, and it's not something we really consciously think of, there weren't a lot of incidental pop songs included in especially mainstream cinema until like the second half of the 20th century. Before then, they might reprise old standards, but it was usually a character within the film singing it or performing yeah, it yeah. like the idea of just all of a sudden in the background a song you already know is playing and it's recontextualizing the scene was actually pretty novel and it's something that scorsese became very famous for doing and helped popularize uh finally like 100 in the mainstream and scorpio rising does that but it does that in such an in-your-face way it is so powerfully creating a juxtaposition that you can't not react to it. All right. This is yet another thing I have not seen, and it's yet another thing that I look forward to. It's pretty cool, man. Yeah. Uh, All right. Whitney, I know exactly what you're going to choose, but I'll let you introduce it. Oh, you're talking to me. Uh, okay, well... Uh, you, Sorry, William. It's okay. We get that a lot. Uh, I can't okay. imagine why. Right? I, one time uh, when we were doing like a script for something, we were doing like a sketch that we did. Um, oh God, we, we came up I with like this. we came up with like lines. To, I think it was when we were doing uh, the MST3K uh, uh, entrance at the Schmodown. Uh, we had to come up with like, okay, so you're going to say this joke, and I'm going to say this joke, and we're going to pre-record it. Uh, 
So in order to differentiate whose line was what, I put a W for Whitney, and then I put a W for me. Oops. And it took me a few lines to realize what I was doing wrong. <laughs> that was wasn't going to be helpful to either of so, them. So, so then you just do the first two letters. So W-I. Right? And w- oh, Must- wait, no. <laughs> anyway, uh, my number one, you... Uh, 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 B, you already sort of showed us that we can break the mold here because I was originally going to go all film. And mm. you not only put like just a whole filmmaker's filmography, but you put a TV series. And not only that, you put a Netflix TV series. So for my number one, I am picking Wachowski Starship and uh, uh, um, is it J. Michael Straczynski who also worked on this? No, it was Tom T. Wasn't it Tom Tickfer? Tom Tickfer also worked on it, but they also worked with another uh, writer as well. Uh, but I'm talking about uh, the television series Sensate, which I maintain is possibly the greatest television achievement of at least the last ten years. If and it's and if I'm looking at the 21st century, I put it up there with The Wire. Like, I think this series is... And and J. McSwizinski did help co-create it. Uh, I think this series is absolutely novel, and I think it is absolutely beautiful and insightful. It has made me laugh, cry, cheer. It has blown my mind. And it did so by telling a fantasy story, a sci-fi story, a superhero story, in a way unlike I've ever seen before. And that's hard to do. Because so much of the sci-fi fantasy stories that we see are all steeped on the same traditions. Some of these traditions are good. Some of these traditions are rooted in really, really, really bad colonialism. Like there's a lot of undercurrents, subtle, unexamined perhaps, but undercurrents of racism and sexism and... Uh, weird exceptionalism in a lot of the stories that we tell. Uh, And it's very rare to see a truly uh, uh, ambitious, at least cinematically when people aren't really prone to take chances, uh, sci-fi fantasy story that seems to create new rules. Sensate is the story of a group of eight people all around the world who, after an inciting incident, and I want to be a little vague about it so that you can explore it for yourself, uh, all of a sudden, they are interconnected with each other. They've never met, but they have the ability to feel what each other are feeling and speak to one another and even share in each other's uh, uh, memories and skills. So, all of a sudden... Uh, a, a street tough in Germany is sharing a mind with a uh, uh, young med student or doctor in India. And they're also sharing a mind with a the daughter of a Korean businessman who is also a, like an underground cage fighter. Also, they're sharing a mind with uh, a guy in, God, I can't remember what country in Africa, but there's a guy uh, who drives a bus there's a cop in America. There's an Icelandish uh, DJ. And uh, there's a, uh, a queer uh, telenovela actor in Mexico. 
Is that all of them? It's most of them, anyway. Uh, and I, I, I looked it up. The, the country is Nairobi. Thank you, it's Nairobi. Or, or, uh, or the country is Kenya. The city is Nairobi. Oh, sorry, yes. The, thank you. Country is Kenya, city is Nairobi. Thank you for that. Um, and the, initially, the series just focuses... Oh, and there's a trans woman in uh, San Francisco. And initially, the series just focuses on all of their initial stories, and they can't even quite necessarily pick up on what's different about their lives. But gradually over the course of the series, Sensei shows a sense of interconnectivity about the human experience, where every human experience is directly linked to every other human experience, and the divides between all of us are important and meaningful, but also artificially heightened, so that we begin to see other people as other instead of people. And it does that through storylines that include uh, getting revenge on the guy who killed your dad, uh, an evil organization that is trying to use these sensates uh, for sinister purposes, uh, all kinds of like these incredibly broad stories. There's political stories. There's... Uh, musician stories there's all kinds of rom-com stories behind the scenes hollywood stories and very quickly it, it helps to binge this one it really does like if you watch it individually it might take you a little while to grab your bearings but if you binge it you're gonna find by about four episodes in that your concept of how a traditional narrative framework has completely broken down and your acceptance of the rules of like superhero storytelling and what people with extraordinary abilities are capable of and what they would use those abilities for are being dramatically shifted. Uh, it is a story that is incredibly humane, incredibly exciting, incredibly novel. Uh, the only real downside to it is that Netflix kind of chickened out and didn't pay for like a full final season. Uh, fortunately, there was enough of like a letter writing campaign that they were able to put together a feature film uh, that does wrap it up. It's a little rushed, but it is very effective and it does work. Uh, so, you know, it, it would have been better if it had had another like four hours to really get in depth with the characters and bring them all more organically to their conclusion. But overall, this is one of the most distinctive pieces of cinematic storytelling movie or television that I've seen in a really long time. And I love this series and I wish it had been more popular and I hope people continue to explore it because it's really dense and rich and flavorful and really queer and it's so good and I love it to pieces. Yeah, um, this is I. I was talking with you about it the other day on Twitter, and just how I saw from the from the very first episode that it was that this was going to be a great show, and then in the first few episodes, um, the trans woman in San Francisco, her, her character storyline um, with with being in danger of basically being trapped in a hospital, and procedures are going to be done to her that that whole storyline was just pretty triggering for me and so sure. i just had to turn it off and so anyway and i asked you about it and you said that it does end well for her and so that was 
I'm going to get back into it. It's not a, I will say this. I totally get that it's triggering and that's, that is definitely an issue. And I understand that I, I personally appreciate that the show isn't afraid to deal with that as this incredible, like basically treat that kind of, uh, uh, oppression as another aspect of supervillainy in a way. Uh, but I will say this, it's not a horror show. It's, it's not, this is a positive show in the end, whatever hardships the characters go through, some of them go through worse than others. But uh, in the end, it is a show about interconnectivity and positivity, and I do think it is worth sticking with. All right, so it's the sci-fi action version of a Pitchapong Beer Ethicals filmography. Got it. Yes. <laughs> so, Whitney, do you have anything to say about Sense Eight? I haven't seen a frame of Sense Eight. Okay. I'm not not at all familiar with Sense Eight. Um, William's spoken very ecstatically about it, and every time I look into it, it looks so corny that I just don't want to, don't want to, want to dip my toe in just yet. Um, I've seen Cloud Atlas, and I know what happens when the Wachowskis try to play with big operatic notions of uh, interconnectivity, uh, uh, of human empathy, and how important it is as you know, the defining characteristic of ourselves as a species. And of course it comes across as incredibly ham fisted. So I, I fear sitting through sense eight, I'll might alienate a lot of people. I really admire because it doesn't look like something I'd enjoy. Okay. I'm going to say this right now. Mm. I cloud Atlas. There's stuff I really like in cloud Atlas, but I think we can all agree. It's kind of a swing and a miss. Like there are things that they did so wrong in that. And they really, uh, uh, Tom Hanks as the gangster character. Well, there's that. <laughs> he's really, but in, he's in, really trying. But they're they're trying to have all of these people play different characters throughout the course of human history, and uh, in order to to show like sort of the connectivity of the human soul, uh, many of the characters play different genders. Many of the characters also play different ethnicities, and at that point. The Wachowskis, whatever their intentions, fell flat on their faces. And it just doesn't come across as positive and wholesome and utopian as I think they were going for. And Cloud Atlas is, is, is huge and ambitious and there's stuff I like about it, but it feels like a dry run for Sensei. It feels like they, they realized that in order to do this right, they needed to not be limited to a film they needed to actually have the time to really explore the characters' lives, not just how they interconnect because of a plot, but to actually show who they are as individuals and then their interconnectivity can come in when it is organic as opposed to whenever it looks neat. So I do agree that Cloud Atlas is arguably their worst film, but or at least that in the Matrix sequels. But uh, Sensate, I think, honestly... Uh, is everything Cloud Atlas is not in a good way. Okay. I mean, I, um, I know I'll hunker down eventually, but yeah, it's it's something that seems like such a chore that I've been kind of staying, vaguely staying away. Not not like avoiding or, or hating it, but yeah, not not something I'm quite prepared to do. Also, it's a TV to. series. It's, it's, it's a time sink, and we're both very yeah, busy. We're making a lot of yeah. podcasts, for God's sake. You guys are kind of busy. Yeah. Um, That's not fair. to d- not to dwell on the Wachowskis forever, but I do think that they are 
that good that it warrants just a, I just want to say a little bit more is that having seen both cloud Atlas, which I did not like, um, and the first three episodes of sense eight, I can say that it is a very different feel. It feels a lot more down to earth for lack of a better term than cloud Atlas does. And I honestly, I kind of, if it's not going full crazy, like with uh, speed racer, I think I would, I really would like to see what the Wachowskis would do if you just gave them $40 million to make something as ambitious as they, as they could go for and go back to something like the first matrix was low budget. I actually kind of like the sequels. Um, It surprised me too. Um, (laughs) And I just, there was a recent thing on Twitter was like, if you could have a Stanley Kubrick Mm -hmm. film be remade, who would you get to do what? And I did all of them. And I said, Kelly Reichardt should remake Barry Lyndon. Mm. Um, But I did as a bonus is like, I would actually like to see the Wachowskis do AI. And I'd like to see him do it for $60 million. That would be cool. There you go. I like that. That's, that's fun. Because there's, there's a lot there. And I think that Spielberg as well-intentioned as he was, it was just a bit too Spielberg um with with how that with how that film worked out and i think if you give it to some weirder filmmakers more experimental more filmmakers and say you don't have all the money in the world you just have you just you have the bare the bare minimum see what you can do i think that would be really interesting yeah so my number one originally i had I was going to go full art house and say, ah, let me talk about Thai cinema and stuff that I don't really understand and just (laughs) seem cool. But when I was going through preparing for the, for this episode and just going through like, okay, let me just find a list of queer films. And there was one that showed up that I had forgotten about and kind of buried that I had seen a long time ago and I rewatched it. And upon rewatching it, I realized why I had buried it and why it should be my number one. And my, my number one pick is Stephen Chomsky's the perks of being a wallflower. Oh, Mm -hmm. and I know that Whitney hasn't seen this one and I'm actually kind of glad because I think that after this, um, if you go into it knowing with with um, more context than the film gives you, I think it might be a better experience. The Perks of Being a Wallflower is the in back in whenever the initial book, which was written by Stephen Chopsky, he directed his own his own adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the it was one of the first big YA YA novels, and subsequently one of the first larger um YA um films as as we know them like The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. The Perks of Being a Wallflower it came out kind of before those were everywhere, at least in the vein that I was aware of. And and so the film and the book both I think feel a little cli almost cliched or maybe or kind of like a bit overly sappy in some ways. Um and the film does ultimately center a straight romance and the main character is is a is a, is a straight guy played by Logan Lerman as Charlie 
uh, Emma Watson plays um, a love interest, Sam and Ezra Miller. Uh, they, they play Patrick, who is uh, Sam's uh, brother and who is, who is gay. And I watched this film um, back when I was 15 and before I had come out to myself and while I was going through some really tough stuff. And I think what, I think my least favorite thing about the YA genre and about films like this is how they have twists when, if you're wanting to capture adolescence, the twists, they don't, there's, we already know all the context when we're growing up and the context is everything. And what I think the film does that is ultimately to its detriment is that it hides the big reveal of what Charlie, what Logan Lerman's character has been going through the entire film. And so this is technically a spoiler. And if you don't want to know it, I guess you can skip ahead a bit, but I actually think that it's, if you know this information that, um, the film works so much better and Logan Lerman's performance is revealed to be a very, very good performance is that Charlie um, throughout the film is dealing with um, it's expressed at the beginning of the film that his only friend committed suicide before the events of the film. And, and we know that he had this aunt character that had passed away and and it's kind of traumatizing him, but we don't really know why. And then at the end of the film, it's revealed that that aunt character had been sexually abusing him as, when he was a little kid. And, and watching this film again, it's, it, really, it really hit me because I dealt with that as a kid. And, and this film... I was watching a kid deal with post-traumatic stress disorder and I was watching a kid deal with trauma in towards the end of the film, it comes to a head and it was hard to get through for me because it is just so I was watching a panic attack that I had had so many times happen on screen and, and this, and to get back to the queer element, um, to see Ezra Miller playing this out, it's out as you can be, but out and proud character who is just who I, I see myself in a lot of ways after dealing with the trauma that I had been through as, and seeing myself as kind of a before and after in Charlie and Patrick's character in Logan Lerman and Ezra Miller's characters. And it was just, I, realized that I had buried this thing because I wasn't ready to deal with it. And this film, I think, despite it being very polished and very, it has that narration where there's a thousand eight hundred days left to school or whatever. And there's the Paul Rudd character who's that teacher and everyone fits in their little slot of this is how the story gets told all, every time that I think that there, the, that its ability to tackle the way it tackles trauma and the way it tackles um, honest relationships between between a, a straight a straight kid and a queer kid, and how I saw that my as my relationship with my past self and my and my present self, I just found the film to be incredibly powerful, and 
and yeah, it just there there was no way that it wasn't going to be number one on my list. Uh, I I've actually been very impressed by the impact Perks of Being a Wallflower has had since its release because when it came out, I mean, it wasn't a huge hit. It was critically respected, but I got the impression that this might be one of those just well-made coming-of-age movies that will hit some people really hard, but then might just become a footnote like so many films, even really great films, do. And I've been really impressed at the the sort of foothold it's been able to have for so many people who mostly are younger than me. Uh, and how people have really glommed on to its genuineness. And you actually just said something, and you said it, I think, more articulately than I could, and I think I even did at the time. The, the, the structure of the film were revealing what our protagonist has been going through for so long as a twist. I think it's designed to represent the idea of him attempting to repress memory, and he's not dealing with what he's actually going through and that's fine on paper but in practice he's just at arm's length and the film really does play that way where it feels like we don't know why he feels so disconnected and on one hand that's very sympathetic but i think you're right and i actually haven't revisited this film since i saw it in theaters and i actually really want to now because i bet with that context, I, you're probably right. The movie probably plays infinitely better when you understand the full breadth of what the protagonist is actually going through. But even without that, even if you only see it the one time, beautifully acted, beautifully performed. It's a really good movie. Yeah, Ezra Miller, he, he had already, in the year previous, We Need to Talk About Kevin had come out. And yeah. I think that that was their their big, like, this is this is me. I'm a great I'm a great actor. Um, this was my introduction to them, and and it was also incidentally my introduction to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which plays a prominent role in the film as a way of Ch- Charlie kind of coming out of his shell. And I think it it is kind of a a straightened version, if you will, of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it's was just seeing those images and seeing um, Patrick as this kind of free spirit who also was dealing with his own trauma. I think it was just, I think this film explores trauma, which is something that a lot, almost all, I mean, everyone deals with trauma on some level, but especially with queer people, the idea of repression and the idea of, of, not being able to 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 be themselves or not being able to know themselves as as they as they might want to be i think is just something that that if you if you read the film on that level with that information going in i think it's i, I think it's a really powerful film yeah all right i have uh uh first off thank you for that and and secondly uh there's so many like, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, rather obvious films that are sort of universally accepted as great that I feel so guilty for not putting on my list. So, The Matrix. 
the Matrix is but the, one of them. The Rocky uh, Horror Picture Show, for goodness sake. I was, Which I what... haven't seen, and I can't wait what? for... I can't... So, it hasn't been... Re- all I'll say is that I'm very excited to explore the Rocky Horror Picture Show in the near future. And... Um, Along with you guys, that's all I'll say. <laughs> so you're wait. So you're waiting. Obviously, it's a bad year for it, but you're waiting to see it in a theater. Oh no, I'm I'm waiting to explore it with you guys. Ah. Uh, and I'm not sure. Anyway, that's and so I, I it's it's something I still haven't seen, and I I don't know. I'm not really into huge midnight screening type things. I never really was. So I might not ever go and enjoy the sh- go and enjoy the show, but as you've said, William, that it does work without the show. And anyway, in a different so- way, but yeah, I think I do think it does. Um, okay, well, um, cool. Should we just go in the order that we were going before? Should Whitney? Whitney, do you have any runners up? Yeah. Oh, all the honorable mentions. Oh, oh, good golly, so many. Um, <laughs> Let's just wrote them down. Uh, Greg Araki's Mysterious Skin is a really wonderful, really wonderful film. It's his most sensitive movie. Um, I'm a big fan of Heavenly Creatures. Uh, I think that's Peter Jackson's best film. Uh, gosh, uh, Law of Desire, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, Boys Don't Cry, Cabaret, uh, Blue, Derek Jarman's Blue is a really important movie. Uh, there's a lot I haven't seen. I haven't seen stuff like uh, you know Death in Venice. Um, Mulholland Drive is on my runners up. Dog Day Afternoon is on my runners up. Uh, uh, um, I haven't seen Bo Travai, and I feel really bad about that. Um, oh gosh, the, like I wrote down just a bunch of important queer films, and it, it struck me how few of them I've actually seen. Um, I was torn between several uh, Fassbender movies. I chose Fox and His Friends, but if you want to have uh, a much more Rococo lesbian romance go with the bitter tears of Petra von Kant, but only do that if you have a strong constitution. Uh, I really love Tangerine. Um, I really love Portrait of Lady on Fire, of course. Uh, I was I, I did put Tropical Malady on my runners up. Uh, I mean, heck, Brokeback Mountain is a pretty important movie. I think that's actually a pretty affecting drama. Uh, Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together is really really beautiful, um, and I could I could even list more. Uh, okay, uh, so uh, I'll try to make this quick. Um, going back to horror movies and the way that they use uh, horror as an allegory for the queer experience, and specifically in this case, um, someone who has internalized the idea that being queer makes him a monster. Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, is actually a really powerful film, and I think it's largely misunderstood, but it's starting to get its due, finally, and I do think it's really good. Uh, Moonlight is exactly as good as you've heard. It is absolutely <laughs> revolutionary. It's better. The only reason... Th- better. Yeah, well, now it's as good as you've heard, because you've just heard it's even better than you've heard. What? Um, but it is absolutely incredible, revolutionary filmmaking. And the only reason I didn't put it on my list was you've probably heard of it in one best picture. Uh, but it is absolutely amazing. Uh, a record picture shows on my list. Another uh, sort of takeoff on the Carmilla story, The Blood Spattered Bride, uh, is another uh, sort of lesbian themed horror film. Uh, All About My Mother is on my list. The Matrix is on my list. Uh, a camp classic that people still don't give enough credit to. Can't stop the music. 
Ugh. The musical story of the creation <laughs> of the village people, which, as we all know, uh, Steve Gutenberg did. Oh, Steve uh, Gutenberg did that. Ew, uh, really? What? Ew. I actually recently rewatched this. It's great. Okay? It is really funny. <laughs> it is really fun. It is really campy. It is spectacularly over the top. All right? It's got... Um, um, got caitlin jenner in it like as as one of the romantic leads like it's it's just this really fascinating film and i i think it's fun uh let's see uh the handmaiden an incredible uh thriller if you love bound please see the handmaiden uh milk is very good mulholland drive uh rope um the the film that i if we were actually ranking the best of i would have put up my number one portrait of a lady on fire um <laughs> Set It Off isn't an especially queer film, but Queen Latifah's performance, I think, uh, sets it apart. Set It Off is one of the best heist movies ever made that people don't talk about enough. Uh, Wild Zero deserves a mention. Uh, If you've never seen Wild Zero, it is a film about a Japanese uh, metal band uh, that fights off aliens who are trying to conquer the world with zombies and in the process fight for queer love. Uh, it is awesome. Really mm-hmm. cool. Uh, Velvet Goldmine, uh, I'm absolutely in love with. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein uh, is full of queer themes. And uh, speaking of TV shows, uh, the HBO series Looking is really excellent. Uh, and in the anime side of things, a very strange series uh, that you kind of have to see to, to believe and appreciate called Yurikuma Arashi, which I will just let you explore for yourself. Hmm. all right um i'm going to skip all the ones that everyone else has mentioned um i did have the works of Celine shiama specifically everyone obviously knows portrait lady on fire but tomboy i love that film um that's a um my favorite christmas film tokyo godfathers yes um, oh, that, why was that on my list oh my god <laughs> I, I failed. it might be i failed i don't know how it's, i don't know how it slipped my mind thank you for Watch including tokyo it. godfathers it's amazing. It is amazing. Um, Thank you. Um, D. Reese's Pariah, um, mm-hmm. just the use of poetry and the power of vulnerability in that film is great. Call Me By Your Name. Um, I know that William has an issue with the casting of Army Hammer, and I and I get that. I think it's use of, of, of music and just everything about the visuals and the sound of that film is just incredibly engrossing. Um, if you interpret it this way... Um, which I personally don't, but a lot of people do. Uh, Igmar Bergman's Persona is an amazing mm. film. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the best. Um, and uh, Kelly Reichardt's Old Joy, which is um, a bit more of a, a, a subtle story. It might not, it's more queer coded than it is explicit, but I think it's beautiful. And then um, my two runners up that I had in case someone stole something off my list was um, Alfonso Cuarón's Y Tu Mamá También, which is subversive and one of the, my, it's, it's one of my favorite films, just period. It's, it's subversive, it's smart, it's sharp, it's political, and it's, and it's great. And then um, the, it's a, something that came out this year, which is Feel Good from creator Mae Martin, which is a story about a non-binary comedian uh, struggling with addiction and with uh, having and a re- struggling with a relationship with a closeted woman, 
And it's one of the first things that I've seen. I know that there's more stuff out there that I haven't encountered, but of where just there was a non-binary as the lead and, um, and it more comes out towards the end of the season, but, but it, I, I found it to be pretty clear throughout of just that this, it was cool to see, to feel that representation on screen. And I thought that that was really cool. Um, but yeah, so those are my runners up. Um, there's so much more. I think that that's one of the, the, the crazy things about, about maybe why people are so apprehensive to journey into queer cinema, because as if it's going to all be about sex and relationships, when a lot of it is, I mean, there are noirs and there are rom-coms and there are every genre. I mean, just look at, just look at what we've talked about today is that there's every kind of film that queerness is not a, it shouldn't be a gate that keeps people out. It's just, it's mm-hmm. films and our vehicles for empathy. And, and I think that the queer cinema is just a way to see a perspective that isn't, that is, that is often unheard. And I think that it's, that if we just took the time and watched and listened and opened our minds that we'd see that, that it's not so different and it's, it's not so radical as, as, or, or confrontational as, as you might think. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you for letting me be a part of this podcast. I really appreciate it. This has been a really great deep dive, I think. And I think it's really cool. As you said, how many different types of movies we were able to highlight, uh, in, a, a scant two hours and ten minutes or so. Yeah, it went longer than I thought. I apologize. <laughs> no, this is what are you talking about? This is the critically acclaimed network. If we don't hit two hours, we're not doing our job. Um, all right, we expect you to do nothing but listen to our podcast. That's all we have time to do. Um, but seriously though, this has been great, and I. I love these kinds of shows because I end up with a great list of films that I need to catch up on. And I yeah. got a whole bunch. So thank you for your contributions, B. Thank you, Whitney, for reliable as ever pulling Weird something stuff. out of nowhere. Like, I love it. I love <laughs> the things that you're able to discover in your journey. And hopefully my picks weren't too mainstream to be cool. But, um, Thank you, everybody. Thank you once again. Uh, B, thank you so much for joining us. You've been an incredible co-host. Um, we're going to give our basic like information, but I want to give you like the last say. So uh, real fast, uh, for everybody listening, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. As usual, I am at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and uh, in addition to all the other shows that we have on the Critical Acclaimed Network for free, like Critically Acclaimed and We've Got Mail, we also have patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network, where we have a lot of exclusive content. We have podcasts about Oscar movies, the 1960s Batman TV series, uh, reviewing every single episode of Star Trek ever, movies that aren't on Disney Plus but should be. We're doing commentary tracks. And, as you may have noticed, we also offer... You're Critically Acclaimed, a podcast where we allow 
our patrons to sponsor an episode on a topic of their choice. And this has been a particularly good one. I'm really, really, really happy with how it turned out. Uh, and, uh, of course, our patron has been B. Peterson. And please take it away. Uh, uh, lead us out. All right. Well, I just, I need to, I, before I go, I just, I came into this thing with a lot of nervousness and apprehension just because of the phrase, never meet your heroes. And really, though, I've found since I came across your Ready Player One review two and a half years ago and started and who are like, what are all these French words that they keep saying about <laughs> je ne sais quoi and milieu and ennui and also just trashing the Steven Spielberg film. And I realized that you guys, you just, you knew so, so much and there was, no, there was no way that I couldn't respect that. And I just, and you really, I don't think you are my heroes. I think you're my mentors oh, when it comes oh. to, when it comes to, 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 when it comes to studying film. And I just, I have to say thank you. And anyway, in terms of plugging myself, you can find me on Twitter and you can find me on Letterboxd where I meticulously make lists of everything, just everything, <laughs> um, at Blue Gray Closet on both of those, B. Peterson on both of those. And um, yeah, uh, watch Steven Universe, watch The Legend of Korra, queer kid shows. I wish I, I wish I had them as a kid and it's why I think that that every single decade of cinema is better than the last, except for maybe the two thousands, um, because, <laughs> <laughs> is because we have every single decade more voices are being heard and more stories are being told, and I just and it's it's great, and so yeah, I guess if there's if I'm gonna close the show out, I guess I just have to say that that Black Lives Matter and the Trans Lives Matters. Trans Lives Matter and, and go vote and be excellent to each other and party on. <laughs> <laughs> party on, dudes. And and seriously, B, it's an honor to, to hear you say that. And um, I'm not sure we deserve it, but I'm, I'm very, very honored to hear you say that. And thank you again. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, and that's the end of the show. 